0: So this week is Parsha's Vayera, and it is a loaded Parsha, and I want to mention before we start that some of the ideas of the Parsha, some of the stories of the Parsha, some of the personalities of the Parsha, we've actually discussed in podcasts over the past year. So at the beginning of the year, we did two episodes on the Rosh Hashanah readings, which both come from this week's Parsha. Back in the times of Shavuot, we spoke about Ruth. Ruth, of course, is a descendant of Lot, and we spoke about that at some considerable length a couple of months ago. So there are parts of this Parsha that we did delve into in a major way in the most recent months. But this week is the second of two weeks where we are following Abraham, who is the protagonist. He's going to pass away at the end of next week's Parsha. But that Parsha, next week's Parsha, is mostly about the bearing of Sarah, And the finding of a spouse for Isaac. So really, Abraham's story, or Abraham being the central character, is going to end really in this week's Parsha. And today, I want to explore an interesting question. Of course, Abraham is a titanic influence on the people of his time. He started a movement that boasted, in the words of the Rambam, tens of thousands of adherents. He's bringing the world to monotheism, and he's bringing many of his compatriots with him. Now, at the time, the world has a much smaller population than it has today. Abraham doesn't have the aid of mass media, so having a following consisting of tens of thousands of people, that's a huge following. Abraham was likely the most influential person in the world at the time. And I have already suggested in the past that Abraham perhaps is the most influential person in history. He's the one who changes the tide of humanity more than anyone else. So Abraham is really affecting the world in a big way. But interestingly, the Torah does not focus so much on Abraham's influence and interactions with the masses. We do get a few hints here and there, you know, when he's traveling to Canaan, he takes with him the souls that he made in Haran. He calls out in the name of God. He builds an a He uses generosity and hospitality to influence the passerby. But the Torah focuses a lot more on his interactions with individuals and his relationships with the people closest to him. And of course, when we examine Abraham's students, Abraham's protégés, Abraham's disciples, Abraham's influence on them is readily apparent. But is it? Hmm. Let's take a look at Abraham's closest students and see what we find. I think there are three individuals who were told that they were trained by Abraham. And these are Abraham's, I would say, three primary students or three primary charges. Of course, we have his brother-in-law slash nephew, Lot. And Lot, of course, appears at the very beginning. He travels with Abraham from Ur-Kazdim to Haran, eventually to Canaan, the land of Israel. When there's a famine, Lot joins the family when they go to Egypt. He becomes very wealthy in Egypt alongside Abraham. Because they have such incredible wealth, Abraham and Lot are bumping into each other. Their shepherds are jostling. They have to part ways. And Lot moves to Sodom, to Sodom but their paths are going to cross yet again. There's the world war, the war of four kings against five kings. We read about that in last week's Parsha. Abraham is told that Lot's kidnapped and he undertakes a daring rescue mission and he eventually saves Lot and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. When Abraham is told by God in this week's Parsha that Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed, so he tries valiantly to overturn this decree, he's ultimately unsuccessful But due to his prayers, Lot is saved. Of course, there's a very interesting story between Lot and the two angels who arrive in Sodom and Sodom to save him. Lot prepares for them a tremendous feast. He defends them against the mob. After Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, Lot is too ashamed to rejoin Abraham. And he has an embarrassing, shall we say, scandalous couple of nights with his daughters. And that's really the last that we hear of him. So the first, I would say, candidate to be Abraham's student would be his brother-in-law slash nephew, Lot. The next individual we have to study is Abraham's right-hand man and confidant, who we call Eliezer. When Abraham mobilizes his forces to rescue Lot, the verse says that Abraham took with him 318 warriors. This is Genesis fourteen fourteen. Rashi says, no, there wasn't actually 318 warriors. It was just Eliezer, his right-hand man. And the gematria of the word Eliezer is 318. And therefore, this is someone who's really accompanying Abraham. He is his right-hand man. When Abraham, in chapter 15, receives a blessing from God, God's going to protect him, he tells God in verse 2, Hashem Elohim, O Lord God, what can you give me? I'm childless. I have no children. And the person in my house, the person who's in charge of my household is Damesek Eliezer. What does Damesek Eliezer mean? So Rashi quotes the Talmud. The word Damesek is a mashup of the word Dole umashke, which means to draw, like to draw water from a well and to give to drink. And it explains that Eliezer was such an accomplished student of Abraham that he was able to draw from Abraham's well springs of Torah and share it with others. And therefore, Abraham is saying, this is my right-hand man. And if I die childless, all the blessing that you give me, it's just going to end up being inherited by Eliezer, not by my own child. And God, of course, promises him, no, your right-hand man, domestic Eliezer, he's not going to inherit you. You're going to have a child. So, again, we see that Eliezer is accompanying Abraham. In 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 his life, and he is presented as Abraham's person, the person who would take Abraham's Torah, draw the wells of Torah, and give others to drink. Now, in this week's parsha, when Abraham takes Isaac to the Akedah, to the Binding of Isaac episode, he travels with Eliezer as well. In next week's parsha, Eliezer is featured prominently when Abraham instructs him to go seek a wife for Isaac. So he travels to Abraham's hometown with ten laden camels, and he makes the test. Of course, we're reading about this next week. He makes the test for Rebecca. He says, I want to find a good, worthy spouse for Isaac, someone who really exhibits the kindness of Abraham, someone who's worthy to join this empire of kindness. I'm going to ask the girl for some water, and I'm not going to tell her that I want water for the camels as well. And the one that offers water to the camels without being prompted. That's someone that really understands what kindness is all about. And that's someone that is worthy to be Abraham's daughter-in-law and Isaac's spouse. So, well, he hasn't made that test and he finds, of course, Rebecca. And he has to finalize the deal with Rebecca. They're negotiating a bad faith. Initially, they agree. And then they say, maybe no, they have some cold feet. They change their mind. And ultimately, he succeeds in bringing her back to Isaac. So the answer is someone who clearly is a great candidate to be someone who is a student of Abraham, but who was molded and crafted by Abraham and embodies what a true disciple and protege of Abraham looks like. And then we have Isaac. Isaac, of course, is Abraham's son and successor. And what's really interesting is About Abraham's three primary disciples is that while Lot and Eliezer both seem to exhibit Abraham's influence, with regards to Isaac, that influence is conspicuously missing. Isaac does not seem to behave in a way that portrays, that manifests the fact that he's a student. He is a pupil. He's a protege of Abraham. Lot behaves very much like Abraham. Read a story the she's parasha. He's behaving with exemplary, superlative Abrahamic levels of kindness. The angels come. They're masquerading as travelers. And he goes over the top with his kindness. He's even willing to endanger himself and his family for the sake of his guests. In Sodom... Lot is displaying kindness and warmth and faith, really, that apparently is emblematic or is similar to what he picked up from Abraham. You could even make an argument, and I heard this particular argument from my grandfather, blessed memory, that the reason why Lot moved to Sodom was to be an influence on them. Like Abraham, he was trying to imbue the sinners and the pagans with faith. Perhaps he viewed himself as Abraham's emissary, Abraham's representative, in Sidon. So clearly, Lot was heavily influenced by Abraham. What about Eliezer? Eliezer, Abraham's confidant, Abraham trusts him completely. He travels to scout out a spouse for Isaac, and he's able to suss out the potential candidates with great Still, when he sees that Rebecca offers the water to the camels, of course, this is, again, like we said in Netrich Parsha, she exhibits the requisite kindness to join Abraham's family. Eliezer also distinguishes himself and acts as a truce of Abraham when dealing with Rebecca's family. And again, he's described as dole omashteh. He draws Abraham's Torah and teaches it. He clearly, like Lot, put in his hours, as a people of Abraham, and absorbed Abraham's teachings. But what about Isaac? We don't seem to see how Abraham influenced his own son Isaac. It's really hard to see Abraham's fingerprints, if you will, on Isaac. In fact, quite the contrary. They seem to be spiritually mismatched. Abraham is forever associated with unbridled kindness. Chesed l'Avraham. Isaac is the polar opposite. His enduring attribute is that of strict judgment. Yet Isaac is the heir. He's the successor of Abraham. When Eliezer accompanies Abraham and Isaac to the binding story in the Suits Parasha, Abraham tells Eliezer, You stay here with the donkey. And the Midrash tells us that when they arrived at the mountain, when they arrived at Mount Moriah, Abraham asked the question, what do you see? Do you see what I see? He saw a cloud hovering over the mountain, similar to the cloud of Sinai. The mountain of Mount Moriah had the presence of God over there. But he asked the people that were traveling with him, do you see it? And Isaac says, yes. And Ishmael and Eliezer, they say no. And Abraham says to them, okay, you stay here with the donkey. You are spiritually unfit to partake in this experience. This is something that only Abraham and Isaac are privy to, only they can participate in. Abraham and Isaac are together. They go up together the mountain. They are on a different level than the people that remain with the donkey. They're part of the pantheon, Abraham, Isaac, and of course, Jacob. And it's so interesting that Abraham apparently has no discernible impact on Isaac. It's not so clear how Abraham influenced him. Now, you may argue, I think legitimately, that Anetri's Parsha, that in a few weeks we're going to read how Isaac had to travel to a foreign land and he presented his wife Rebecca as his sister. So clearly he is channeling some of what he learned from Abraham. But again, it's kind of odd that the heir and successor to Abraham, not just because he's his child, because he truly embodies what Abraham stood for, is someone that doesn't seem to have, at least in a way that is overt, that's clear to us to see, he doesn't seem to have the same impact that Abraham's other protégés have. How do we make sense of that? So I want to suggest an idea. Now, the crux of this idea I heard from my grandfather, but the idea, I think, is a very powerful one. It's a very valuable lesson as to how To be a good student. How to absorb and integrate the teachings and the ideas of great teachers. Abraham, indeed, had three primary disciples. Lot, Eliezer, and Isaac. But these three disciples are three different kinds of students. Each one absorbed Abraham's teachings in their own unique way and in a different way. Let's start with Lot. It may seem that Lot was the greatest student of Abraham. The over-the-top kindness that is with the angels in Sodom seems to be a mirror image of Abraham's behavior with those same angels earlier. Parsha begins, Abraham is running around doing crazy kindness with the angels. And a few verses later, Lot's doing the same thing. He's behaving with superlative kindness to the same angels. You read the stories, it's almost identical how Abraham and Lot are treating these angels. But here's the critical point. I think we might have mentioned it in the other podcast. When the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed, verse 29 of chapter 19, we read how Lot is saved. And the verse says that when God was destroying these cities, he remembered Abraham. And he sent Lot from amidst the upheaval of the city. So the question that Rashi asks is, why is God remembering Abraham to save Lot? And Rashi says something astonishing. Make sure you're sitting down in a chair before you hear this one. Ask Rashi, why is God remembering Abraham to save Lot? Says Rashi, God is remembering that Lot, Abraham's brother-in-law slash nephew, he knew that Sarah was the wife of Abraham. And when they go down to Egypt together, and the people are interrogating Abraham and Sarah, who is this woman? How do you know her? What's your relationship? Are you married? And Abraham says, no, she's my sister. Lot could have blown this all up. Lot could have revealed the truth. And he kept quiet. He didn't implicate Abraham. He had mercy on Abraham. And therefore, God says, You have mercy on Abraham, I'll have mercy on you. God remembers Abraham, i.e., the episode of Lot's mercy on Abraham, and therefore he has mercy on Lot and he saves him from the city. Isn't this interesting? Lo to someone that apparently has a lot going for him spiritually. He's doing kindness in a way that's similar to Abraham. His behavior with the angels is akin to that of Abraham's behavior with the angels. But that's not enough to save him. What saved him? The fact that he did not reveal that Sarah was really married to Abraham. He didn't rat out his brother-in-law and his sister. It seems so minor. Who is going to reveal such damaging, such harmful information to the inspectors? What great accomplishment is it for Low to keep quiet when he has some damning information against his brother in law? Doesn't seem to be like it's a great accomplishment. Yet that's what saved him and not the kindness. So my grandfather blessed memory would always quote this answer that was given by the altar of Slabotka which, by the way, we did several podcasts on the Jewish History Podcast channel on this great individual of Jewish history, the altar of Slobodka Rabbi Nassim Svi Finkel, of blessed memory. And he said like this, Lot was indeed an exemplar of kindness. But that was only what he saw Abraham do, and he merely copied it. Lot's kindness was mimicry. And mimicry does not save you from destruction. The only deed in Lot's whole history that was his and his alone was indeed something really small. Who, after all, would reveal such harmful information about their brother-in-law and sister to the authorities? So it was small, comparatively, in relation to the deed of kindness. But that was his. And it wasn't something that he copied from Abraham. Abraham. Lot was the lowest level student of Abraham, of these three. His absorption of what Abraham taught, the kindness of Abraham, was very surface level. He was like a, a parrot, as we say. The parrot just repeats what he sees. He sees the kindness and he does it. His behavior was mimetic. His understanding of what Abraham represents was very surface level. And it actually led him astray. It led him to do things that were very corrupted and and warped. He offers his daughters to the mob. Where does that come from? The answer is that he didn't really understand anything on his own. He just copied Abraham and he wanted to be like Abraham. He wanted to sacrifice something for kindness. And therefore he sees a situation where these guests of his are in peril. And he says, I'm going to sacrifice. I'll give you even give up my daughters for it. This is an example of someone who didn't fully absorb the approach of his teacher. He only knew how to copy it. And therefore, when there was a new situation that he never saw with Abraham, Abraham was never forced to make a choice between guests and And his family, he never witnessed the situation, therefore he didn't know what to do. And he made a grave blunder because he never saw this particular episode, this particular challenge, this particular dilemma in Abraham. And he was not able to copy Abraham in this situation, and he went astray. Lot was an expert at puppeting Abraham. He was a perfect copycat of Abraham. But this mimetic learning is severely limited. That's the lowest level of Abraham's protégés. The next level is Eliezer. Eliezer is described as someone who would draw the waters of Torah of his teacher and give it to others to drink. Dole le'umashke mitorah's rabu Eliezer was not only a student of Abraham's Torah, he was a purveyor of Abraham's Torah. Abraham had followers. Abraham had adherents. Abraham would lecture. Abraham would teach. Abraham called out the name of God. And his teacher's assistant, if you will, is Eliezer. And any student that had a question, they would go to Eliezer. Eliezer, perhaps, after Abraham's lecture was over, he would review it. He would rephrase it he would explain in a way that everyone understood. Unlike Lot's understanding, which was hollow, maybe he could repeat it verbatim, maybe he could perfectly copy Abraham, but it was empty. In the words of the Talmud, there is something called an action of an ape. Monkey see, monkey do. That's what Lot was like. It was perfect mimicry, but devoid of substance. Elias was not like that. He understood the principles of Abraham's Torah, not just the words, not just the surface. And he would apply first principles thinking to Abraham's Torah. He would distill the insights down to their core, down to the principle, boil it down to its essence, and then he would be able to extend it elsewhere. If you truly understand the principle, you should be able to phrase it in 10 different ways you should be able to see it in other areas, in other domains. You could see other places where this principle can be applied and you could teach it effectively. Eliezer's grasp of Abraham and Abraham's Torah was so complete that he was the one who Abraham made in charge of teaching others. And he was the one that Abraham trusted with a sacred mission of finding Isaac, a wife. He gets through the well, and what does he do? He's able to devise a test to determine if the prospective spouse indeed had Abrahamic kindness. Eliezer had such a keen understanding of Abraham that he knew precisely how to identify that characteristic, that gene, so to speak, in others. And he was able to craft the perfect test to determine if the candidate is indeed suitable. That's Eliezer, this next level of protege. He drew from the wells of Abraham's tower and gave it to others, extended it further. But even Eliezer was not the ultimate protege. Isaac is the highest level of a student. Isaac was Abraham's spiritual successor, spiritual heir, in addition to being his child. And it seems that Isaac's lack of manifestation of Abraham's character is a feature, not a bug. Lot is mimicking Abraham's Torah. Eliezer, he's truly understanding it and applying it, extending it outwardly. Isaac is seamlessly integrating Abraham's Torah within him. The highest level of being a student the highest level of being a protege is to absorb and digest the principles and layer it in to who you are in your own uniqueness. It's to take the inputs and marry it, fuse it with your inborn uniqueness to create something new. The ultimate student is not someone that's trying to recreate their teacher, but to create the best version of themselves with the teachings of their teacher. Abraham is forever associated with kindness. Isaac is associated with the absolute opposite attribute, namely that of strict judgment. Isaac was different than Abraham. He had a different role to play. He took what he absorbed from Abraham and assimilated it into himself while retaining his unique God given identity. There's an axiom from one of the great Hasidic masters, Rabbi Aaron Karliner, Rabbi Aaron of Karlin. And he used to say, Master of the world, what do I want? To be like Abraham? There really wasn't Abraham. But to be the best Aaron Karliner that ever could possibly exist, to be the best version of myself. That is what I want because that has never existed yet. Isaac could have mimicked Abraham like Lot. He could have been someone who discarded their own identity and says, I'm just going to be a copycat. I'm just going to mimic Abraham. That's a very low level. Even Eliezer is a low level. Isaac could have been like Eliezer. He could have been the best teacher of Abraham's Torah, like Eliezer. But he was a greater student than both of them. He was Abraham's ultimate protege, because he went that last mile. And he took Abraham's teachings and used it to make the best Isaac that was possible. I think this is a very valuable lesson. When we absorb, maybe there's three different stages. Maybe the first stage is what we could call maybe Lotian mimicry. Like Lot, we just copy. And hopefully we start absorbing. A much higher level is the Eliezerian true understanding. When we really get it, it really resonates and we start to apply it elsewhere. But the highest level is the Isaacian integration and assimilation. And that is when your own unique identity is still present, but you've integrated and you've absorbed and you've assimilated within you the teachings of your master, but you've made it your own. And now you could exhibit it in your own fashion, not just as a representative or purveyor of your master. Very powerful and insightful teaching. And as always, my email address is rabbleomajibba.com. I want to say that before we start this week's version of A and Q. Okay. So let's again reiterate what A and Q is. We have some new listeners, I'm sure. A and Q, answers and questions. There's questions and answers where the audience asks me a question. And if you have a question, you could shoot me an email, rabbleomajibba.com. But on the part of Podcast, we like something else. We like answers and questions. Namely, I give you a question. And let's see what you got. Let's see what answers you to come up with to this week's partial question. So this week's partial question is about the binding of Isaac, chapter 22. One of the most vivid, interesting, perplexing, if you will, stories in the entire Torah. God tells Abraham, Please take your son! your only son, the one you love, take Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Travels for three days, and we know the story. Ultimately, Isaac is spared. But God tells Abraham, now I know you've passed this final test. Now I know that you truly fear God. So we know, based upon the Mishnah, that this is one of the 10 tests of Abraham. According to most opinions, it is the last, the final one of the 10 tests of Abraham. So here's Rashi in verse 2 of chapter 22. So chapter 22, 2-2 two, two, and verse 2. Please take your son. And Rashi's question is, why is God pleading with Abraham to take a son? Give him an instruction. Take your son and go offer him as a sacrifice. Why please? So Rashi, based upon the Talmud in Sanhedrin page 89, Rashi says, please, i.e. God saying to Abraham, please succeed in this test so that people will not say the first ones, i.e. the first nine tests, had no substance. Again, this is based upon the Talmud. The Talmud says that this is akin to a human king who had many wars. And he had a great warrior who won every war, a great general won every war. And sometime later, there was this tremendous war, tremendous enemy, tremendous battle. And the king tells the warrior, tells the general, win this war so that people will not say the previous wars, the previous victories were nothing, had no substance. So too, they might tell us, Abraham, I tested you so many tests. I told you to go to Israel. I told you to send away Ishmael. I had your wife kidnapped. I Nimrod rode through into the the fiery furnace. And you triumphed in all of them. But please, please, please succeed in this one. Why? Because if you don't, everyone's going to say that the first ones had no substance. And here's the question. Why? What would have happened if Abraham failed in this test? Apparently there is an argument to say that he has nothing. Isn't a 90% still a very good scorecard? Now, I wouldn't really know what that feels like, but I'd imagine if someone scores 90% out of 100, it's still pretty good. Why would it be considered negligible if Abraham failed his last test? If you have an answer to this question... Send me an email, rabbalomjibben.com. Okay, let's talk about last week's question. And I think it was a really hard question. The question is, why was Abraham's first foray into the land of Israel, specifically to the city of Shechem? And we mentioned that Jacob, when he ascended to Israel from spending 22 years with Laban, now he's got a big family, the first city that he goes to is also Shechem. And then Joshua, leading the nation after the death of Moses, when he crosses over the Jordan and enters the land, the first day he spends in the land of Israel, and goes to Shechem and goes to Mount Greece and Mount Ebal and has the very important event where half the nation goes into one mountain, half the nation goes to the other mountain, the Levites from in the middle, and they have the blessings and the curses. Why specifically is the city of Shechem the first place we go to in the land of Israel? Now, of course, the subtext of this question is that different places have different spiritual energies. Of course, this should be obvious. You know, much of the Torah is obsessed with the land of Israel, with the land of Canaan. Moses is so intensely craving to enter the land. So maybe we could reframe this question as what is the spiritual energy of the city of Shechem? I think it's a very hard question. And the city of Shechem is going to appear many times in the book of Genesis, and maybe we will encounter some other ideas over the next couple of weeks as we read more about the stories of this city. But I did get fewer answers this week than previous weeks, and that was expected. But what I really liked is the process, so to speak, of people researching the question, researching the subject, and trying to assemble all the little bits of information that we know about this city. So a bunch of people pointed out that the city of Shechem, the word Shechem, is Hebrew for shoulder. Maybe that's a clue. Three different people described Shechem using the identical word, crossroads. I thought that was a very astute observation. It's been mentioned that Shechem, the city of Shechem, has deep associations with Joseph. It's the place from where Joseph is sold. It's where Joseph is buried. Jacob apportions the city of Shechem to belong to Joseph in Genesis 48, 22. In this city, Dina was raped and then Shimon and Levi, her brothers, ravaged the whole city of retaliation. There's a lot of stuff going on in this city. Now we know that Joseph actually married the daughter of Dina that she conceived with Shechem. The city Which, by the way, is a little confusing because the person Shechem and the city Shechem are different things. So Dina is raped by an individual named Shechem in the city of Shechem. So that's a little confusing. Just put that out there. This city also hosts the blessings and the curses on these two mountains in this city. And in addition, Shechem is designated as a city of refuge where accidental murderers would have to flee. So I want to suggest the following kind of taking together all that we know about the city, what's the common unifying theme? Shechem is the city of blessings and curses. Shechem is a mixture. It's the ultimate mixture of good and bad. It's got both Mount Grisim and Mount Abel. Now we could say that Joseph perhaps symbolizes the blessing and the curse. He's someone who brings blessing to Egypt. Egypt, it's a city, it's a place that's full of curse. It's full of forces that are antithetical to what the Jewish family represents. And Joseph is able to kind of have a beacon of holiness that's able to penetrate all the darkness. He's able to Extract the good or, or portray the good amidst the bad. The brothers of Dina, what do they do? They avenge their sister. That act is the manifestation of good and bad. On one hand, it's very good. They display courage and they display brotherhood and they display kinship and love of family. On the other hand, Jacob tells them that you've acted like Asaph. There's blessing and curse in their behavior. A city of refuge. An accidental murderer kills someone accidentally. He goes to the city of refuge. What is that? So Talmud tells us that that is both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because it gives you refuge. If you're outside of the city, you're vulnerable to the avenger. But it's also a curse. It's also punishment because you have to remain there. You're punished that you cannot go elsewhere, your mobility is limited. Maybe we could suggest that no city in the land exhibits as much of a mixture of blessing and curse as the city of Shechem. And therefore, perhaps we could say, the first thing that you have to do is you have to separate the good and the bad. The biggest challenge that we have Is that the good and the bad ever since the sin of Adam, where he consumes from the tree of knowledge good and bad, now or thenceforth, good and bad are mixed. The objective that we have to do is to be able to separate the two and remove the good and the bad from each other and to be able to reject, repudiate the bad, repudiate the curse and absorb and imbibe the good. Good and bad are interwoven. And the first task that we have to do is to try to separate them. It's about to identify what's good, what's a blessing, what's bad, what's a curse. Now I was speaking to my, my oldest brother. His name is Eli, Eli Wolby. He, in fact, has a yeshiva. I probably should call him Rabbi Eli Wolby. He's my brother, so maybe I'm a little bit latched about that. He's just my older brother, but he actually runs a yeshiva and he has a shul. He's a very great rabbi who lives in Israel. So he was telling me that he gave a lecture last week in his yeshiva, and he pointed out that the beginning of Genesis, it mentions the word light five times, but you know what else it mentions five times? The word separation. There's light and there's darkness, and God separates the two. That's the first thing that God does. Similarly. We have light and darkness, blessing and curses, good and bad. And that is most felt in the city of Shechem. The first thing you have to do, you want to absorb the power of Canaan, the power of the land of Israel. You have to go and tackle the prerequisites to absorbing the blessing. And that is, you have to clearly identify what's good, what's a blessing, what's something you must Try to absorb as much as possible. And what's bad? What's the curse that you better avoid? Abraham, the first place he goes to? Shechem. Jacob, first place he goes to? Shechem. Jewish people, first place they go to? Mount Greece, Mount Abel, the city of Shechem. Let's separate. Let's know what's on this mountain, what's on that mountain, what's a blessing, what's a curse. And the two should not be mashed up, melded together. We shouldn't have this amalgam of good and bad. Because once you have that, you don't have the ability to be able to absorb the blessing. I noticed in the verse that talks about Abraham going to Shem, it has an addendum, the verse. And the Canaanites were then in the land. And Rashi explains that this really was not the Canaanites' land. They were encroaching in the land of shame. Really, they belonged elsewhere, but they were then in the land. I found that really strange. It's describing Abraham's foray travels in the land and it gives you this seemingly tangential point oh you should know that at that time the Canaanites were in the land what is the relevance of the fact that Abraham's traveling to Makom Shem, place of Shem, place of Elon Mora oh and by the way the residents of the land at that time were the people of Canaan why is it relevant to Abraham's travels maybe now we know the answer why did Abraham go to Shechem? He's there to parse out the influence of Canaan. Canaan, you may recall, is the person that Noah cursed. The only person that Torah was cursed is a person of Canaan. Canaan and the people of Canaan, the Canaanites, are in the land. There's cursed stuff in the land. And therefore Abraham travels to the absolute epicenter of that mixture and he's there to try to Separate out the spiritual alloys of the land to remove the things that are cursed and to be able to begin to tap into the great blessing of this land. What a powerful insight. If you have any comments on it, you can always send it to me, rabbojibah.com. But I love this idea that the first thing you got to do, the very first thing is you have to know what's good and what's not good. Because if you jump in and you try to say, oh, once I'm in it, I'll just figure it out. I'll play by the seat of my pants. I'll play it by air. Shoot from the hip. I'll figure it out. It's too late. First thing you do before you jump in, before you dive in, is to get a very clear assessment of what's good and what must be absorbed and what's bad, what's a curse that's dangerous, that's harmful, that's fatal, must be avoided at all costs. First thing you do, you go to Shechem. You go to Shechem, and you identify what's good. And like God, you try to separate the light from the darkness, the good from the bad, the evil, the curse from the blessing. And now you know your mission. What's on this mountain, you avoid. What's on that mountain, you try to embrace as much as possible. What an insight. What an idea. What a powerful, wonderful takeaway of this question. This is an example of the power of, Of the A&Q. This is what the PowerShell Podcast is all about. We throw out a question and then we think about it and we're able to discover tremendous gems, diamonds, insights that could really change our life. Thank you so much for listening. My email address is rabbeowalbjaman.com and have an amazing Shabbos and thank you so much for listening and please God, we will chat next week.